Chapter 9 of the Suppression of the African Slave Trade to the United States of America, 1638 to 1870, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Waterbaron. Chapter 9. The International Status of the Slave Trade, 1783-1862. The Rise of the Movement Against the Slave Trade, 1788-1807. At the beginning of the 19th century, England held 800,000 slaves in her colonies. France, 250,000. Denmark, 27,000. Spain and Portugal, 600,000. Holland, 50,000. Sweden, 600. There were also about 2 million slaves in Brazil, and about 900,000 in the United States. This was the powerful basis of the demand for the slave trade, and against the economic forces which these four and a half millions of enforced laborers represented, the battle for freedom had to be fought. Denmark first responded to the denunciatory cries of the 18th century against slavery and the slave trade. In 1792, by royal order, this traffic was prohibited in the Danish possessions after 1802. The principles of the French Revolution logically called for the extinction of the slave system by France. This was, however, accomplished more precipitately than the convention anticipated and in a whirl of enthusiasm engendered by the appearance of the Dominican de deputies, slavery and the slave trade were abolished in all French colonies February 4, 1794. This abolition was short-lived, for at the command of the first consul, slavery and the slave trade was restored in an X, 1799. The trade was finally abolished by Napoleon during the Hundred Days by a decree, March 29, 1815, which briefly declared, Deter de la publication du present decret, la traite de Norris est abolite. The Treaty of Paris eventually confirmed this law. In England, the united efforts of Sharp, Clarkston, and Wilberforce early began to arouse public opinion by means of agitation and pamphlet literature. May 21, 1788, Sir William Dolben moved a bill regulating the trade, which passed in July and was the last English measure countenancing the traffic. The report of the Privy Council on the subject in 1789 precipitated the long struggle. On motion of Pitt in 1788, the House had resolved to take up at the next session the question of the abolition of the trade. It was, accordingly, called up by Wilberforce, and a remarkable parliamentary battle ensued, which lasted continuously until 1805. The Grenville Fox Ministry now espoused the cause. This ministry first prohibited the trade with such colonies as England had acquired by conquest during the Napoleonic Wars. Then, in 1806, they prohibited the foreign slave trade, and finally, March 25, 1807, enacted the total abolition of the traffic. Concerted Action of the Powers, 1783-1814 to 1814. 
During the peace negotiations between the United States and Great Britain in 1783, it was proposed by Jay, in June, that there be a proviso inserted as follows, provided that the subjects of his Britannic Majesty shall not have any right or claim under the convention to carry or import into the said states any slaves from any part of the world, it being the intention of the said states entirely to prohibit the importation thereof. Fox promptly replied, If that be their policy, it never can be competent to us to dispute with them their own regulations. No mention of this was, however, made in the final treaty, probably because it was thought unnecessary. In the proposed treaty of 1806, signed at London, December 31st, Article 24 provided that the high contracting parties engage to communicate to each other without delay, all such laws as have been or shall be hereafter enacted by their respective legislators, as also all measures which shall have been taken for the abolition or limitation of the African slave trade, and that they further agree to use their best endeavors to procure the cooperation of other powers for the final and complete abolition of a trade so repugnant to the principles of justice and humanity. This marks the beginning of a long series of treaties between England and other powers looking towards the prohibition of the traffic by international agreement. During the years 1810 to 1814, she signed treaties relating to the subject with Portugal, Denmark, and Sweden. May 30th, 1814, an additional article to the Treaty of Paris between France and Great Britain engage these powers to endeavor to induce the approaching Congress at Vienna to decree the abolition of the slave trade, so that the said trade shall cease universally as it shall cease definitively, under any circumstances, on the part of the French government, in the course of five years, and that during the said period no slave merchant shall import or sell slaves, except in the colonies of the state of which he is a subject. In addition to this, the next day a circular letter was dispatched by Kasselrog to Austria, Russia, and Prussia, expressing the hope that the powers of Europe, when restoring peace to Europe, with one common interest, will crown this great work by interposing their benign offices in favor of those regions of the globe which yet continue to be desolated by this unnatural and inhuman traffic. Meantime, additional treaties were secured. In 1814, by royal decree, Netherlands agreed to abolish the trade. Spain was induced by her necessities to restrain her trade to her own colonies, and to endeavor to prevent the fraudulent use of her flag by foreigners. And in 1815, Portugal agreed to abolish the slave trade north of the equator. Action of the Powers from 1814 to 1820 at the Congress of Vienna, which assembled late in 1814, Castlereagh was infagatable in his endeavors to secure the abolition of the trade. France and Spain, however, refused to yield further than they had already done, and the other powers hesitated to go to the lengths he recommended. Nevertheless, he secured the institution of annual conferences on the matter, and a declaration by the Congress strongly condemning the trade and declaring that, quote, 
the public voice in all civilized countries was raised to demand its suppression as soon as possible, end quote. And that, while the definitive period of termination would be left to subsequent negotiation, the sovereigns would not consider their work done until the trade was entirely suppressed. In the Treaty of Ghent between Great Britain and the United States, ratified February 17, 1815, Article 10, proposed by Great Britain, declared that, whereas the traffic in slaves is irreconcilable with the principles of humanity and justice, the two countries agreed to use their best endeavors in abolishing the trade. The final overthrow of Napoleon was marked by a second declaration of the powers who, desiring to give effect to the measures on which they were deliberated at the Congress of Vienna, relative to the complete and universal abolition of the slave trade, and having, each in their respective dominions, prohibited without restriction their colonies and subjects from taking any part whatever in this traffic, engaged to renew conjointly their efforts, with the view of securing final success to those principles which they proclaimed in the Declaration of the 4th of February, 1815. Without loss of time, through their ministers at the courts of London and of Paris, the most effectual measures for the entire and definitive abolition of a commerce so odious and so strongly condemned by the laws of religion and of nature. Treaties further restricting the trade continued to be made by Great Britain, Spain abolished the trade north of the equator in 1817, and promised the entire abolition in 1820. Spain, Portugal, and Holland also granted a mutual limited right of search to England and joined in establishing mixed courts. The effort, however, to secure a general declaration of the powers urging, if not compelling, the abolition of the trade in 1820, as well as the attempt to secure a qualified international right of visit, failed, although both propositions were strongly urged by England at the Conference of 1818. The Struggle for an International Right of Search, 1820 through 1840. Whatever England's motives were, it is certain that only a limited international right of visit on the high seas could suppress or greatly limit the slave trade. Her diplomacy was therefore henceforth directed to this end. On the other hand, the maritime supremacy of England, so successfully asserted during the Napoleonic Wars, would in case a right of search were granted, virtually make England the policeman of the seas, and if nations like the United States had already, under present conditions, had just cause to complain of violations by England of their rights on the seas, might not any extension of rights by international agreement be dangerous? It was such considerations for that many years brought the powers to a deadlock in their efforts to suppress the slave trade. At first, it looked as if England might attempt, by judicial decisions in her own courts, to seize even foreign slavers. After the war, however, her courts disavowed such action, and the right was sought for by treaty stipulation. Castlereagh took early opportunity to approach the United States on the matter, suggesting to Minister Rush, June 20th, 1818, a mutual but strictly limited right of search. Rush was ordered to give him assurances of the solicitude of the United States to suppress the traffic, but to state that the concessions asked for appeared 
of a character not applicable to our institutions. Negotiations were then transferred to Washington, and the new British minister, Mr. Stratford Canning, approached Adams with full instructions in December 1820. Meantime, it had become clear to many in the United States that the individual efforts of the states could never suppress or even limit the trade without sympathetic cooperation. In 1817, the Committee of the House had urged the opening of negotiations looking toward international cooperation, and a Senate motion to the same effect had caused long debate. In 1820 and 1821, two House committee reports, one of which recommended the granting of a right of search, were adopted by the House but failed in the Senate. Adams, notwithstanding this, saw constitutional objections to the plan proposed by Canning and wrote to him, December 30th, a compact giving the power to the naval offices of one nation to search the merchant vessels of another for offenders and offenses against the laws of the latter, backed by a further power to seize and carry into a foreign port, and there subject to the decision of a tribunal composed of at least one-half foreigners irresponsible to the supreme corrective tribunal of this union, and not amenable to the control of impeachment for official misdemeanors, was an investment of power over the person's property and reputation of the citizens of this country, not only unwarranted by any delegation of sovereign power to the national government, but so adverse to the elementary principles and indispensable securities of individual rights, that not even the most unqualified approbation of the ends could justify the transgression. He then suggested cooperation of the fleets on the coast of Africa, a proposal which was promptly accepted. The slave trade was again a subject of international consideration at the Congress of Verona in 1822. Austria, France, Great Britain, Russia, and Prussia were represented. The English delegates declared that, Although only Portugal and Brazil allowed the trade, yet the traffic was at that moment carried on to a greater extent than ever before. They said that in seven months of the year 1821, no less than 21,000 slaves were abducted, and 352 vessels entered African ports north of the equator. It is obvious, said they, that this crime is committed in contravention to the laws of every country of Europe and of America, excepting only of one, and it requires something more than the ordinary operation of law to prevent it. England therefore recommended, one, that each country denounce the trade as piracy, with a view of founding upon the aggregate of such separate declarations a general law to be incorporated in the law of nations. Two, a withdrawing of the flags of the powers from persons not native of these states, who engage in the traffic under the flags of these states. Three, a refusal to admit to their domains the procedure of the colonies of states allowing the trade, a measure which would apply to Portugal and Brazil alone. These proposals were not accepted. Austria would agree to the first two only. France refused to denounce the trade as piracy, and Prussia was non-committal. The utmost that could be gained was another denunciation of the trade, couched in general terms. Negotiations of 1823 through 1825. England did not, however, lose hope of gaining some concession from the United States. Another House committee had, in 1822, 
reported that the only method of suppressing the trade was by granting a right of search. The House agreed, February 28, 1823, to request the President to enter into negotiations with the maritime powers of Europe to denounce the slave trade as piracy, an amendment that we agree to be a qualified right of search was, however, lost. Meantime, the English minister was continually pressing the matter upon Adams, who proposed, in turn, to denounce the trade as piracy. Canning agreed to this, but only on condition that it be piracy under the law of nations and not merely by statute law. Such an agreement, he said, would involve a right of search for its enforcement. He proposed strictly to limit and define this right to allow captured ships to be tried in their own courts, and not to commit the United States in any way to the question of the belligerent right of search. Adams finally sent a draft of a proposal treaty to England, agreed to recognize the slave traffic as piracy under the law of nations, namely, that although sizable by the officers and authorities of every nation, they should be triable only by the tribunals of the country of the slave trading vessel. Rush presented this project to the government in January 1824. England agreed to all the points insisted on by the United States, viz. that she should denounce the trade as piracy, that slavers should be tried in their own country, and that the captor should be laid under the most effective responsibility for his conduct, and that the vessels under the convoy of a ship of war of their own country would be exempt from search. In addition, England demanded that the citizens of either country captured under the flag of a third power should be sent home for trial, and that the citizens of either country chartering vessels of a third country should come under these stipulations. This convention was laid before the Senate April 30th, 1824. It was not acted upon until May 21st, when it was so amended as to make it terminable at six months' notice. The same day, President Monroe, apprehending from the delay in the decision that some difficulty exists, sent a special message to the Senate, giving at length the reasons for signing the treaty, and saying that, should this convention be adopted, there is every reason to believe that it will be the commencement of its system destined to accomplish the entire abolition of the slave trade. It was, however, a time of great political pot-boiling, and consequently an unfortunate occasion to ask senators to settle any great question. A sympathetic attack, led by Johnson of Louisiana, was made all the vital provisions of the treaty. The waters of America were exempted from its application, and those of the West Indies barely escaped exposition. The provision which, perhaps, aimed the deadliest blow at American slave trade interests was likewise struck out, namely the application of the right of search to citizens chartering the vessels of a third nation. The convention thus mutilated was not signed by England, who demanded at least concession the application of the right of search to American waters. Meantime, the United States had invited nearly all nations to denounce the trade as piracy, and the President, the Secretary of the Navy, and the House Committee had urgently favored the granting of the right of search. The bad faith of Congress, however, in the matter of the Columbian Treaty, broke off for a time further negotiations with England. The Attitude of the United States and the State of the Slave Trade In 1824, the right of search was established between England and Sweden, and in 1826, Brazil promised to abolish the trade in three years. In 1831, 
the cause was greatly advanced by signing of treaty between Great Britain and France, granting mutually a geographically limited right of search. This led, in the next few years, to similar treaties with Denmark, Sardinia, the Hans towns, and Naples. Such measures put the trade more and more in the hands of Americans, and it greatly began to increase. Mercer sought repeatedly in the House to have negotiations reopened with England, but without success. Indeed, the chances of success were now for many years imperiled by the recurrence of deliberate searches of American vessels by the British. In the majority of cases, the vessels proved to be slavers, and some of them fraudulently flew the American flag. Nevertheless, their molestation by British cruisers created much feeling and hindered all steps toward an understanding. The United States was loath to have her criminal negligence in enforcing her own laws thus exposed by foreigners. Other international questions connected with the trade also strained the relations of the two countries. Three different vessels engaged in the domestic slave trade, driven by stress of weather, or, in the Creole case, captured by Negroes on board, landed slaves in British possessions, England freed them, and refused to pay, as for such they were landed after emancipation had been proclaimed in the West Indies. The case of the slaver La Amistad also raised difficulties with Spain. This Spanish vessel, after the Negroes on board had mutinied and killed their owners, was seized by a United States vessel and brought into port for adjudication. The court, however, freed the Negroes on the ground that under Spanish law they were not legally slaves, and although the Senate repeatedly tried to indemnify the owners, the project did not succeed. Such proceedings well illustrate the new tendency of the pro-slavery party to neglect the enforcement of the slave trade laws in a frantic defense of the remotest ramparts of slave property. Consequently, when under the Treaty of 1831, France and England joined in urging the accession of the United States to it, the British minister was at least compelled to inform Palmerston, December 1833, that the executive at Washington appears to shrink from bringing forward, in any shape, a question upon which depends the completion of their former object, the other and universal abolition of the slave trade, from an apprehension of alarming the southern states. Great Britain now offered to sign the proposed Treaty of 1824 as amended, but even this Forsyth refused and stated that the United States had determined not to become a party of any convention on the subject of the slave trade. Estimates as to the extent of the slave trade agree that the traffic to North and South America in 1820 was considerable, certainly not as much less than the 40,000 slaves annually. From that time to about 1825. It declined somewhat, but afterward increased enormously, so that by 1837, the American importation was estimated as high as 200,000 Negroes annually. The total abolition of the African trade by American countries then brought the traffic down to perhaps 30,000 in 1842. A large and rapid increase of illicit traffic followed, so that by 1847, the importation amounted to nearly 100,000 annually. One province of Brazil is said to have received 173,000 in the years 1846 to 1849. In the decade 1850 to 1860, this activity in slave trading continued and reached very large proportions. The traffic thus carried on floated under the flags of France, Spain, and Portugal until about 1830 
From 1830 to 1840, it began gradually to assume the United States flag. By 1845, a large part of the trade was under the Stars and Stripes. By 1850, fully one half the trade. And in the decade, 1850 to 1860, nearly all the traffic found this flag its best protection. The Quintuple Treaty, 1839 to 1842. In 1839, Pope Gregory XVI stigmatized the slave trade as utterly unworthy of the Christian name, and at the same time, although prescribed by the laws of every civilized state, the trade was flourishing with pristine vigor. Great advantage was given the traffic by the fact that the United States, for two decades after the abortive attempt of 1824, refused to cooperate with the rest of the civilized world, and allowed her flag to shelter and protect the slave trade. If a fully equipped slaver sailed from New York, Havana, Rio de Janeiro, or Liverpool, she had only to hoist the stars and stripes in order to proceed unmolested on her piratical voyage, for there was seldom a United States cruiser to be met with, and there were, on the other hand, diplomats at Washington so jealous of the honor of the flag that they would prostrate it to crime rather than allow an English or French cruiser in any way to interfere. Without doubt, the contention of the United States as to English pretensions to a right of visit were technically correct. Nevertheless, it was clear that if the slave trade was to be suppressed, each nation must either zealously keep her flag from fraudulent use, or, as a labor-saving device, debut to others this duty for limited places and under special circumstances. A failure of any one nation to do one of these two things meant that the efforts of all other nations were to be fruitless. The United States had invited the world to join her in denouncing the slave trade as piracy. Yet, when such a pirate was waylaid by an English vessel, the United States complained or demanded reparation. The only answer which this country for years returned to the long-continued exposures of American slave traders and the fraudulent use of the American flag was a recital of cases where Great Britain had gone beyond her legal powers in an attempt to suppress the slave trade. In the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, Secretary of State Forsyth declared in 1840 that the duty of the United States in the matter of the slave trade has been faithfully performed, and if the traffic still exists as a disgrace to humanity, it is to be imputed to nations with whom Her Majesty's government has formed and maintained the most intimate connections, and to those governments Great Britain has paid for the right of active intervention in order to its complete expiation. So zealous was Stevenson, our minister to England, in denying the right of search that he boldly informed Palmerston in 1841 that there is no shadow of pretense for excusing, much less justifying, the exercise of any such right, that it is wholly immaterial whether the vessels be equipped for or actually engaged in slave traffic or not, and consequently the right of search or detain even slave vessels must be confined to the ships or vessels of those nations with whom it has treaties on the subject. Palmerson courteously replied that he could not think that the United States seriously intended to make its flag a refuge for slave traders, and Aberdeen pertinently declared, Now it can scarcely be maintained by Mr. Stevenson that Great Britain should be bound to permit her own subjects, with British vessels and British capital, to carry on before the eyes of British officers this detestable traffic in human beings, which the law has declared to be piracy, 
merely because they had the audacity to commit an additional offense by fraudulently usurping the American flag. Thus, the dispute, even after the advent of Webster, went on for a time, involving itself in metaphysical subtleties and apparently leading to no nearer to an understanding. In 1838, a fourth conference of the powers for the consideration of the slave trade took place in London. It was attended by representatives of England, France, Russia, Prussia, and Austria. England laid the project of a treaty before them, of which all but France assented. This so-called quintuple treaty, signed December 20th, 1841, denounced the slave trade as piracy, and so declared that the high contracting parties agreed by common consent that those of ships of war which shall be provided with special warrants and orders may search every merchant vessel belonging to any of the high contracting parties which shall, on reasonable grounds, be suspected of being engaged in the traffic of slaves. All captured slavers were to be sent for their own countries for trial. While the ratification of the treaty was pending, the United States Minister to France, Louis Cass, addressed an official note to Gazot at the French Foreign Office, protesting against the institution of an international right of search, and rather grandiloquently warning the powers against the use of force to accomplish their ends. This extraordinary epistle, issued on the minister's own responsibility, brought a reply denying the creation of any new principle of international law, thereby the vessels of even those powers which have not participated in the arrangement should be subjected to the right of search, was ever intended, and affirming that no such extraordinary interpretation would be deduced from the convention. Moreover, M. Guiza hoped that the United States, by agreeing to this treaty, would aid, by its most sincere endeavors, the definitive abolition of the trade. Cass's theatrical protest was, consciously or unconsciously, the manifesto of what the growing class in the United States, who wanted no further measures to be taken for the suppression of the slave trade, toward that, as toward the institution of slavery, this party favored a policy of strict laissez-faire. Final Concerted Measures, 1842-1862 through 1862. The Treaty of Washington in 1842 made the first effective compromise in the matter and broke the unpleasant deadlock by substituting joint cruising by English and American squadrons the proposed grant of a right of search. In submitting this treaty, Tyler said, The treaty, which I now submit to you, proposes no alteration, mitigation, or modification of the rules of law of nations. It provides simply that each of the two governments shall maintain on the coast of Africa a sufficient squadron to enforce separately and respectively the laws, rights, and obligations of the two countries for the suppression of the slave trade. This provision was a part of the treaty to settle the boundary disputes with England. In the Senate, Benton moved to strike out this article, but the attempt was defeated by a vote of 32 to 12, and the treaty was ratified. This stipulation of the Treaty of 1842 was never properly carried out by the United States for any length of time. Consequently, the same difficulties as to search and visit by English vessels continued to recur. Cases like the following were frequent. The Illinois of Gloucester, Massachusetts, while lying in Waida, Africa, was boarded by a British officer, but having American papers was unmolested. Three days later, she hoisted Spanish colors and sailed away with a cargo of slaves. Next morning, she fell in with another British vessel and hoisted American colors. 
The British ship had then no right to molest her, but the captain of the slaver feared that she would, and therefore ran his vessel aground, slaves and all. The senior English officer reported that had Lieutenant Cumberland brought to and boarded the Illinois, notwithstanding the American colors which she hoisted, the American master of the Illinois would have complained to his government of the detention of his vessel. Again, a vessel which had been boarded by British officers and found with American flag and papers was, a little later, captured under the Spanish flag with 430 slaves. She had, in this interim, complained to the United States government of the boarding. Meanwhile, England continued to urge the granting of a right of search, claiming that the stand of the United States really amounted to the wholesale protection of pirates under her flag. The United States answered by alleging that even the Treaty of 1842 had been misconstructed by England, whereupon there was much warm debate in Congress, and several attempts were made to abrogate the slave trade article of the treaty. The pro-slavery party had become more and more suspicious of England's motives. If they had seen her abolition of the slave trade blossom into abolition of the system itself, and they seized every opportunity to prevent cooperation with her. At the same time, European interest in the question showed some signs of weakening, and no decided action was taken. In 1845, France charged her right of search stipulations in 1833 to one for joint cruising, while the Germanic Federation, Portugal, and Chile announced their trade as piracy. In 1844, Texas granted the right of search to England, and in 1845, Belgium signed the Quintuple Treaty. Discussion between England and the United States was revived when Cass held the Senate portfolio, and strange to say, the author of Cass's protest went further than any of his predecessors in acknowledging the justice of England's demands. Said he in 1859, if the United States maintained that by carrying their flag at her masthead, any vessel became hereby entitled to the immunity which belongs to American vessels, they might well be reproached with assuming a position that would go far toward shielding crimes upon the ocean from punishment, but they advanced no such pretension, while they concede that if, in the honest examination of a vessel sailing under American colors, but accompanied by strongly marked suspicious circumstances, a mistake is made, and she is found to be entitled to the flag she bears, but no injury is committed, and the conduct of the boarding party is irreproachable, no government would be likely to make a case thus exceptional in its character a subject of serious reclamation. While admitting this and expressing a desire to cooperate in the suppression of the slave trade, Cass nevertheless steadily refused all further overtures toward a mutual right of search. The increase of the slave traffic was so great in the decade of 1850 to 1860 that Lord John Russell proposed to the governments of the United States France, Spain, Portugal, and Brazil, that they instruct their ministers to meet at London in May or June 1860 to consider measures for the final abolition of the trade. He stated, It is ascertained by repeated instances that the practice is for vessels to sail under the American flag. If the flag is rightly assumed and the papers correct, no British cruiser can touch them. If no slaves are on board, even though the equipment, the fittings, the water casks, and other circumstances prove that the ship is on the slave trade venture, no American cruiser can touch them. Continued representations of this kind were made to the paralyzed United States government. 
Indeed, the slave trade of the world seemed now to float securely under her flag. Nevertheless, Cass refused even to participate in the proposed conference, and later refused to accede to a proposal for joint cruising off the coast of Cuba. Great Britain offered to relieve the United States of any embarrassment by receiving all captured Africans into the West Indies. But President Buchanan could not contemplate any such arrangement, and obstinately refused to increase the suppressing squadron. On the outbreak of the Civil War, the Lincoln administration, through Secretary Stewart, immediately expressed a willingness to do all in its power to suppress the slave trade. Accordingly, June 7, 1862, a treaty was signed with Great Britain, granting a mutual limited right of search, and establishing mixed courts for the trial of offenders at the Cape of Good Hope, Sierra Leone, and New York. The efforts of a half-century of diplomacy were finally crowned. Stewart wrote to Adams, had such a treaty been made in 1808, there would now have been no sedition here. End of chapter 9. Recording by Water Baron.